This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports. Welcome back to another week of the College Football Fix Podcast. I am Dan Wolken from USA Today Sports. Paul Meyerberg is here with me. And we got another week of college football coming up that we are going to discuss. But first, Paul, let's talk about what's going on at Oklahoma. Just seeing this as we start the podcast, Lincoln Riley is shutting down media access for the week at Oklahoma, apparently, apparently, because the student newspaper at Oklahoma, the OU Daily, spied on his practice on Tuesday from a public building, apparently, that that could see into wherever they were practicing, found out that Caleb Williams was running with the first-team offense, Spencer Rattler was working with the second team, they called Spencer Rattler's father, Mike, and got some quotes from him, and apparently Lincoln Riley is mad, 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 mad. Build a bigger fence, Oklahoma, uh, or build a dome. You got the money? Build a dome over your practice. Put a bubble. Well, they have a they have a practice facility indoors. Well, you know what? For sure. If you don't want people to see what you're doing, go inside. I don't have a problem with it. I have a problem with um, the insult to our intelligence that he thinks that we did not already know that Caleb Williams is going <laughs> to start on Saturday. I mean, um, no, but seriously, like I know that it's like uh, it's not cool to say nice job to a sports writer or to a journalist, that's uncool, but nice job by that kid, whoever that is. Um, nice job. So he basically got, he scouted the area by Google Maps, satellite, earth view, best vantage point onto OU's practice field, climbed up to the third floor of the book depository, like like Lee Harvey Oswald, and took out his binox <laughs> and got a shot of Caleb Williams taking first team snaps. I think that's fantastic. I think that's great. Um, shutting down media availability and response. Again, people don't care about this, but as we've said to each other, and as I say all the time, like us, people like us going to media availability is not like, because we like to spend our time speaking to other people about football. It's fun, but we do it because the the fans of the team need to hear what the coach has to say. So Lincoln Riley's penalizing his fan base who now will have no idea what's happening or have an idea what's going into Saturday. So it's a, it's a really cool story. Great job by the OU Daily Kid. And uh, that he'll, I mean, that, that's a career maker. That's the equivalent of, um, that, like, that's a Norman, Oklahoma, small-time Watergate type of story for this kid at OU Daily. Yeah, so it's interesting because uh, on Monday, we all sort of got treated to, or I'm sorry, on Tuesday, we all sort of got treated to a uh, discourse in journalism ethics. And, you know, there was a piece uh, that appeared in The Athletic where there were anonymous sources speaking for Kyrie Irving. And, you know, frankly, it, it came off a bit like a unfiltered PR pitch and it just was not really good. And then and then there's this thing with Adam Schefter and it's part of this uh, Washington football team investigation that came out where he was sending a story to the general manager, the former general manager of the Washington football team to review his, his copy before he submitted it to an ESPN editor, which is just all kinds of bad. So we're in the middle of this whole journalism ethics thing. And now you have the student paper in Oklahoma spying on, on a closed practice. Now um, 
I would say this one is 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 complicated. Now you're you're just giving them unfettered kudos. What is and why I totally, is it com- what is how is this spying? I don't see this as spying. You're in a public place. Like I'm not spying if I well, if I watch you drive by in your car and I'm on the sidewalk. I'm not spying on you. Listen, it, it is easy to justify it that way. I mean, Oklahoma is a public institution. I think there's a conversation to be had about whether their football practices should be open or closed anyway at, at every school um, when when you're on sort of, you know, quote unquote, public property. And I also think, yes, like if this is really nuclear codes being worked on in a football practice, then yeah, probably do it in a place where nobody could even possibly see you or spy on you. Uh, college campuses, as we know, have tall buildings and depending on the location in various schools, you could be in one of those buildings and see a football practice. If there's not the proper fencing, like if the coach is, is that paranoid, um, then, you know, make sure you're in, in a complete bubble. Having said that, this is also one of those things that suggests why coaches are paranoid. Like the idea that a student paper who, again, to be fair, was not supposed to be at that practice, was not, was not invited to that practice, is, is reporting on something that, that's happening, especially, you know, a pretty big personnel move. I understand why Lincoln is pissed, right? Um, I understand why he has a negative reaction to it. Um, I'm not saying it's it's unethical at all. I'm saying it's 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 certainly enterprising. It's certainly aggressive. Um, they certainly have um, blown their their relationship. I would say with with Lincoln Riley. And I guess you'd have to sort of ask yourself if it's worth it. It's it's a little bit of a gray area. You know, I, I don't want to say it's it's a hundred percent. You know, go get them or a hundred percent. This is awful. Um, I think you could make you could have a reasonable discussion about whether or not they should have done this for for a variety of reasons, but like you said, it does not take a genius to figure out that Caleb Williams is going to be their starting quarterback this week. Yeah, yeah, I'm interested in the uh, in the ethical part of it. I, I truly do not think that they violated any sort of ethics in doing this. Did they violate the relationship that that I'm looking at their names now? Mason Young and Austin Kurtwright might have had with Lincoln Riley. I hate to say it, um, and maybe Mason and Austin can attest to this, they probably had zero relationship with Lincoln Riley. And Lincoln Riley may have known they're from the student newspaper, but did not give them the time of day because they're the student newspaper. Most coaches don't spend a lot of time divulging stuff with the student newspaper. I have no problem with them doing it. If you think that they violated a, uh, some sort of – it didn't. you're not saying they violated If you think that they walked the line, um, okay. I still think it's a good story. Well, I think they did a good job, and I do not, oh, it's a great I do not story. rescind my kudos at all. Um, I don't know if these these uh, individuals are of age, but if I was in Norman right now and I saw them, I would say I would like to buy you two a, a, a drink or, or a coffee. <laughs> no, it's a great story and, and it's a hell of a job by them. But, you know, like when you're covering the NFL and NFL reporters are allowed to, to go to football practices, you know, there, there is an agreement or an understanding that, OK, you're going to be there, but you're not going to report on something that's proprietary like a trick play that they're working on or some type of, you know, onside kick formation or something that they might use in a game that would surprise the other team. Totally understand it. Now, you know, we've seen in college football situations where reporters are not allowed to go to practice and yet boosters are there and somebody gets hurt in a practice 
and the boosters start talking about it, or maybe the booster even texts the reporter, and then the reporter puts it out there, or they, you know, they 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 confirm it in some way, and they put it out before the practice is over, and the coach goes ballistic. Now, again, a little bit of a gray area because certainly, as a reporter, our sort of credo is get it right, and when you have it right, and you know you have it right, put it out there. But at the same time, you know, a kid tears an ACL or, you know, has to get carted off and the coach is in the middle of practice and they haven't called the parents or whatever. I understand why there's some sensitivity about that. But, you know, at the end of the day, I do think that who is the starting quarterback for Oklahoma if they're going to make a change? Um, That's a significant story. It's something a lot of people are interested in. And, you know, I, I, hey, they, they made that call. Now, you know, I think the, the tactic by Lincoln Riley is to have the other beat reporters in town get mad at the student paper for doing it because they lost their access too. And I think that's kind of a BS tactic on the part of Lincoln Riley because what that does is, at least in theory, sort of encourages the local media to, you know, play by his rules even if his rules are ridiculous. And by the way, they are. I mean, Lincoln Riley, for as young as he is, is one of the most stodgy coaches in college football about media access. Am I wrong? No, I, that's always been the case. I don't know who taught him that, but yeah, that's always been the case. And he's a friend. I'm not, we're, we're not saying he's an unfriendly guy by any means. No, he's a nice or guy. Or that he's really icy. Not, not the case. But no, you're right. There's never been a, uh, there's not an openness there. And that's fine. That's his prerogative. But I think you, uh, Again, we're probably walking towards things that people don't care about, but I think you're right. To penalize the rest of the media core, I think it's a little bit too far. But another good point I think you made was, yeah, there is an aspect of this about being able to tell the Rattlers or speak to the Williams family about his decision. Um, That's suggesting that he hasn't had those conversations already. It seems like from the OU Daily talking to Mike Rattler, Spencer's dad, that they're fully aware of what's going on. We'll see what happens after January 10th, Mike Rackler said. Hopefully he'll be playing in the national championship, and after that we'll evaluate where he is as far as if any teams are interested in him in the NFL, we'll consider that. Yeah, I think he understands and reads the writing on the wall. So I think we can. We don't need to worry about like those guys getting texts and, and, and all of a sudden finding out the hard way. But um, the, end, the end... Well, Lincoln Riley... I'm sorry, I just going to want to interject here real quick. Lincoln Riley wouldn't even let Caleb Williams talk to Holly Rowe after the Red River rivalry game. Well, any idea why that was? On ESPN, was just crazy. Yeah, I've, I've talked to Caleb Williams before. Extremely gregarious. Really nice young man. Young man. Really nice guy. Um, I'm not sure why they, if he felt that he was not ready for that moment. I, nev- I did not get that impression from speaking to him that he would be intimidated by that. He wasn't intimidated by going into Red River and pulling off and uh, pulling his team back out of the hole when it was 28-7. I don't think he's scared of talking to Holly Roach. She seems very nice. Uh, by the way, um, that was a hell of a football game. That was a fun one. Um, it's always fun when you go through the history of a game that's been played for a century or so and you're like, oh, this is the most points ever scored in this series. Um didn't feel that way. I feel like last year's game felt more explosive, but in the end, I, I thought this is probably the best Red River. I wouldn't say the best Red River. It's in the top five Red Rivers of my lifetime, for sure, easily, and probably top three. Yeah, listen, um, it, it had everything. It had momentum shifts. It had offense. It had big plays. It had pressure plays. 
You had a quarterback change. And I guess the question coming out of it with regard to Oklahoma is now that Caleb Williams is going to be the starting quarterback, it seems, I guess two questions. One is what happens with Spencer Rattler? Because I don't think at this point he is viable to enter the NFL draft after losing the starting job and playing the way he's played this year. And number two, are Oklahoma's offensive issues that have kind of been right at the front of the conversation all year long, are they now fixed? Like, is Oklahoma now a rocket ship ready to take off now that they've made this change? Well, we've kind of felt that Oklahoma was was getting to this point, whether it was with Rattler or otherwise. So I think there's some credence to lend to the idea that they're about to take off, certainly against a stretch of games that's very, very um, winnable. Um, I just don't know how much credit to give Williams for that. You know, I, I think it's too soon to say. I, Rattler is not, if he goes into the NFL draft right now, if he doesn't get the, back the job or, or show something in the next two months, he's, de- he's a developmental prospect. I mean, at best. I mean, even if they think he's got the tools, no one's drafting the first round as a franchise QB. The, the track record isn't there. The experience isn't there. I think it's far more likely that he's playing elsewhere in college next year than he's playing in the NFL, especially if he doesn't get the job back. I, I mean, he, what, who's going to spend a second or first round pick on a guy who's got 17 career starts and, you know, eight of them or nine of them are not up to the standard of being a franchise QB. I, I, don't, I don't see it. Well, Andy's also small. Like he doesn't have sort of the physical stature that you would traditionally look for. Now, obviously that is not a deal breaker. We saw that with Kyler Murray, but, and even Baker Mayfield to a certain extent, but he has not thrived in that system the same way that those guys have. And so it's not even worth much of a comparison. So, yeah, I mean, I would love to know, like right now, it as we speak, how many coaches are reaching out to Spencer Rattler's high school coach, to his father, just, you know, just saying, hey, you know, how's it going? Sorry about, uh, you know, sorry about what happened, you know. We, we, we'd love to talk or whatever. I mean, whatever sly way these coaches tamper without actually breaking tampering rules. I mean, I wonder, I would love to know exactly what's going on right now because my guess is it, it's wild in those DMs. Yeah, I think they've been flooded. If you're a, a Power 5 football coach outside of a select maybe 8 to 10 programs, of course you'd take a Spencer Rattler, right? I mean, how many schools would not view Spencer Rattler as an upgrade? I think a lot would, despite the fact that he's been uneven. So, yeah, he'll have his pick. You know, and this, I mean, if he wants to go group of five, he can go to UCF and start tomorrow. I mean, not literally, but he can go to UCF and get the job right away, you know, a place like that. So he'll have options. I just don't see OU as an option. But, Dan, I think we can both say that at some point this year, if Caleb Williams is the starter, Spencer Rattler will come in and do something that helps OU get to a Big 12 championship. That's just how these things always play out. It's the Jalen Hurts rule. You can be heartbroken, hold a clipboard for three or four weeks, and all of a sudden it'll be the fourth quarter. Uh, against the Cyclones to stay to go 11 and 0, he'll have to come in and, and score 14 points late. That's just how it works. So I hope he's ready because OU will still need him. I just don't know if they'll need him in 2022. Well, and this is kind of the modern story in college football with regard to how a coach manages the quarterback room because we've seen sort of the opposite happen last week with Penn State where Sean Clifford goes out of the game and what's happened at Penn State is I think they've lost like three or four quarterbacks to transfer in the last couple of years, guys who were behind Sean Clifford. 
And so when your quarterback room gets depleted with guys who you you thought might have a future at the program, by the way, one of them is 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 quarterback in Kentucky to an undefeated record right now, then you have a disaster the second your starting quarterback can't play for for whatever reason. And you know, I don't know how healthy Sean Clifford's going to be going forward, but it was very obvious watching that game that their season if if he can't play, their season's over. And that is the modern conundrum for these coaches and why the quarterback position is just so freaking delicate in how you have to manage it. And I think that also plays a part, by the way, in why Lincoln Riley is freaked out. Because what if Spencer Rattler transfers, enters the transfer portal, you know, next week, right? They've still got six games to go. You've you've ticked off your guy who you groomed to be the starting quarterback to the point where he can't even be there anymore. He leaves. Well, then what happens if Caleb Williams gets hurt? I mean, this was a little bit like we saw it, you know, I, one of the first big scenarios we saw that with was was uh, was Clemson, you know, with with Kelly Bryant. So, um, you know, uh, remember when uh, he lost his starting job to Trevor Lawrence, Kelly Bryant enters enters the transfer portal and basically leaves and then and Trevor Lawrence gets hurt against um, Syracuse. was it Virginia it was Syracuse. Syracuse. It gets hurt against Syracuse, and then they have to bring in the the walk on to to try to win the game. So that's that is the mo- this is the modern story of college football, and and it's just who can manage those situations best. It put puts themselves in in better position to survive the grind of a four month season. Yeah, Penn State's the worst example because without Clifford, I don't know what kind of season they're going to have. You know, they can't beat Iowa without Clifford, obviously. I don't know if they're going to beat Ohio State, Michigan, and, and, and you know, get to a point where they could have the season that they envisioned a week ago. Um, this is life, you know. I mean, Oklahoma's backup last year is leading the, leading the nation in touchdowns. He's at SMU right now, Tanner Mordecai. So I think this is just the worst part of the deal for coaches is the transfer portal, and the worst part of the portal is the fact that every single year you recruit a QB and you lose a QB. I don't know how you keep depth. Like, I want to say that you would go out and recruit a guy like Mordecai, who's a three-star guy, and hope that he just hangs around. But no, no kid's just going to hang around. Like, like, oh, I'm so happy to play for Oklahoma. No, I mean, everyone wants to play. So I don't know how you juggle it. Like, I can't say that James Franklin messed up his numbers. I can't, like, blame him for it. Everyone's going through the same thing. I just think, like, every odd year, maybe two out of every three years, you're screwed. You're just screwed. And Penn State is screwed if Clifford is not helping. Yeah, it's... It's kind of one of those situations that we, we've seen it little by little over the years, but now we see it every year because you do have this one-time free transfer that the NCAA has given all the players, and it hits the quarterback position harder than any other because it's, it's self-explanatory, but only one guy can play at a time. So there's going to be hurt feelings. People feel like broken promises. People feel like they got screwed. And also opportunity. And the other side of that opportunity, like I had mentioned, is Will Levis. Who, yeah, I mean, right now we could be saying, yeah, he could be starting at Penn State and and taking over that job because Sean Clifford got hurt and Penn State might might be the number two ranked team in the country right now because I feel like they were going to beat Iowa had, had Clifford stayed healthy. But that's neither here nor there. Will Levis looked at this and said, I only have one shot to play college football. I want to go somewhere where I am going to play. He goes to Kentucky and look what's happened. So I can't blame kids for that. I look like I completely agree with you. You know, 
I don't really sweat typically the million dollar coach losing a guy to transfer portal. It's part of the job description. No, like I don't sweat it. It's part of the job. So get used to it. Part of the job. Get used to it. You know what you need to do if you're a coach? You need to have a child and you need to have that kid playing quarterback from the moment he walks. And then you have a guaranteed backup. He's a walk-on. Your son is not going to transfer from your program. I, I, I don't understand why more <laughs> people aren't doing this. Raise your son to be a backup quarterback. That's it. That's it. Like, it's not complicated. Go out now and plan for 18 to 22 years ahead right now. Right now. Nick Saban is planning. Okay, Nick Saban's not planning 18 years ahead. Nick Saban's planning 8 to 10 years ahead right at this moment. Um, if you're James Franklin, you got 18 to 22 more years in your, in your book. Let's go. Well, I, I mean, I, well, obviously that, that doesn't, the, it, you know, since coaches generally aren't going to keep those jobs for 18 years. However, however, somebody like Stetson Bennett is arguably, you know, maybe the second most valuable type of player in college football, right? I mean, the most valuable type of player in college football is a Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields type quarterback. But the second most valuable type of player is probably like that guy who is competent, who's been in your program for three or four years, who knows what he's doing, and is not going to get you killed when your starting quarterback is out. And that's what we're seeing with Georgia. Now, you know, it's possible that Georgia could be winning some of these games if you or me was playing quarterback because they're just that good defensively, right? No? No, I don't think so. No, probably not. Hey, look, could we have beaten, um, I don't know, Auburn scored a touchdown. That would have put a lot of pressure on us. Uh, okay, so I think Georgia, if, if I'm putting you at quarterback for this Georgia team, I think they go eight and four. Well, I, I take that as a compliment. You should. I'm not I'll saying you, they're not going to lose out. They're just not going to win a national championship. Because I don't know how to play quarterback at all. I barely can, you know, like throw a football competently. So you, but They're never going to ask you to. Don't worry about it. So... But but I'm I'm dead serious about Stetson Bennett because, you know, last year he was a little bit of a joke. I mean, people didn't think he was very good when he played, and and he certainly was flawed. But like, this is a guy who's been in college like five or six years at this point. He, he had a year in junior college. He had a redshirt year. He's been around, and like, it's just such a luxury for Georgia to have a guy like that in the program who knows he's not going to transfer. Like, he's just going to be there, and that is like to me that is gold and. If Georgia ends up winning the national title this year, and they certainly might, like Kirby Smart should give that guy like a, a spot on his coaching staff or something, because because he will have earned every bit of that ring. Yeah, he's like the um, he's the Goldilocks quarterback, right? Like he's not too good, he's not too bad, he's just right. Like he's not going to transfer because some other school like Auburn is like, we need you. This is an opportunity. But he's not so bad that your whole season's going to run off the rails. Just right. Stetson Bennett is right in the middle. Every program needs a Stetson Bennett. Unfortunately, there's only, well, there's four Stetson Bennett's, right? He's the fourth. <laughs> or there have been four. I think he is. But there the aren't a lot of Stetson Bennett. He's the fourth. Ooh, there haven't been that many out there. There aren't that many, like, you know. And look, like, not even the guy who's starting QB at Utah State is going to answer a call from Penn State this offseason and be like, hey, we need a backup. Right. Like, you know. So the conundrum is real. Can Georgia win a national championship with Stetson Bennett at quarterback? No, I don't believe so. I don't believe so. At some point, you're going to be put in a situation where your offense is going to need to go toe for toe, uh, toe to toe. 
And I don't, I don't think Stetson Bennett can do that. Look, I, do I think Stetson Bennett can get them through the East? Do I think Stetson Bennett can get them past Florida? Probably. I'd probably say that they can win against Florida Stetson Bennett. But we've talked about this a, a bunch of times. I think um, Georgia's a different team with JT Daniels. And to win a national championship, you need Daniels under center, not Stetson Bennett. All right, I got another SEC-related question for you. As we stand here today on October 13th, do you think Alabama is going to be in the college football playoff? I do. I do think they get into the playoff, Dan. I think wow. they went out. I do. I do. I mean, it's just so – I just think they do. I mean, I'm, they're not going to lose another game in the regular season for sure. Then you get to a point in December where you've got everything on the line. Georgia maybe not quite as much. Not to say Georgia wouldn't want to beat Alabama because they just can't, and this would be a great moment. It would put them in the dust. I just, I just think Alabama is going to win out. Having said that, they gave up 41 points to Texas A&M and Zach Calzada. I can understand the concern and the doubt. Yeah, I'm not as sure. And the main reason is because we've seen enough of Alabama at this point to know that they're a different team on the road. They're just a different team. Like, and that's By the way, that's not particularly surprising because they are a young team in, in many ways. And younger teams on the road, like last year, as great as Alabama was, they didn't really have to play in those you know, those, those unbelievable road environments that you see because they, they, there were no fans or there were some fans, but it wasn't the typical SEC experience. And, you know, when I look at Alabama's schedule, yeah, I mean, you know, they're probably not going to face an atmosphere quite like they, they faced at A&M, you know, but they still got to go to Auburn and, you know, they're going to Mississippi State this weekend. Not that I think Mississippi State's going to beat them. In fact, I'd be very surprised if that happened. But you know, could at the end of the year go to could they go to Auburn and 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 Bo Nix you know starts pulling stuff out of his rear end and it it just gets to be a crazy game like to me this is an Alabama team that looks like they could be in some crazy games and you're not gonna win all those most of the yeah. time so I'm not yeah. as confident I'm not as confident and I am especially not as confident about them beating Georgia oh yeah I, I think that's a bridge we get to I'm just thinking that I think they get to that point. And look, like you mentioned Mississippi State, mentioned Auburn. I think all of a sudden Tennessee's very interesting. Again, yeah, not a game I, I think they'll lose. But Tennessee, if A&M puts up 41, I think Tennessee's got a shot to do something in the ballpark of that. They've been outstanding. So um, it's going to be – their losses typically in the past have come like week three Ole Miss or week 12 Auburn. It's just really interesting to me. I say the past, like the last five or six years. It's really interesting to me to see them be a loss at midseason and have to reboot with six games left, technically. So it's an interesting situation for Alabama. I just I think I give them the benefit of the doubt. We were all about them a couple of weeks ago. We put them right with Georgia as the two teams at the top of the FBS. Um, one loss kind of shakes the foundation, but I'm still on board. I still think that they've created a, a degree of space between themselves and Iowa, for example. Well, listen, also, you know, th- th- there's going to be a huge conversation apart from everything you just said about if they play a, a solid game against Georgia in the SEC championship and lose, would Alabama be a candidate to be the first two-loss team in the playoff? And that's where you're going to get a lot of the sort of regional partisanship that has kind of defined this whole thing. How do you measure a two-loss Alabama team with a last-second field goal at A&M and a competitive loss to Georgia, who's a clear number one, 
versus, you know, an Oregon team that, that lost that game to Stanford. You know what I mean? It's, it's not easy. Yeah, it's not easy because it's Alabama. I just, um, and we're getting way ahead of it. I think if we're at that point and there's one loss Big Ten, one loss Pac-12 Oklahoma, I don't think it's too complicated. I think instead the comparison point is what do you do with, you know, what is two loss Alabama versus unbeaten Cincinnati? I think that's where it gets very interesting. Because I don't think Alabama two losses, non-conference champ is getting in over a one loss Power 5 champ. Okay. But again, we might get to a point where Ohio State is unquestionably the best team in the Big Ten. And they win the Big Ten championship. But they lose again on the way there, you know, and they're 11 and two, uh, eight and one in the Big Ten. They beat Iowa, which was 12 and 0. Um, and then you're comparing two loss Ohio State, uh, having won the Big Ten, two loss Alabama. There's a lot of permutations to it. Keeping Alabama out of the top four, knowing what we know, is always going to be difficult. I just don't know if it's going to be difficult if you have options that have one loss or an unbeaten Cincinnati. Yeah, well, that's certainly something to to monitor as we go forward. Let's uh, shift quickly to the Big Ten. And I got in some trouble with Iowa fans on Sunday because I sent a tweet basically saying Iowa's going to be number two in the polls, and a lot of these voters are going to be lying to themselves. And, of course, what I meant by that was how many of the voters who put Iowa at number two actually believe that the Hawkeyes are the second-best team in the country? And my belief, I don't know this for a fact, but my belief is it's actually probably a pretty small number. I don't think that many that many voters, coaches, or media believe that Iowa is the second best team in the country. They're kind of there by default. Um, I don't know why, other than just they started ahead of, of those other teams, why they would be clearly number two ahead of, say, Kentucky. I think Kentucky's got a good win. You know, like if we're, if we're just putting undefeated teams there, like Kentucky to me makes some sense, but whatever. It's neither here nor there. Um, that game, Iowa beating Penn State, is is kind of a season shaping result because it puts Iowa in a fantastic position. It puts Penn State in a terrible position, frankly, because they've still got to play Ohio State and and Michigan coming up in Michigan State. If they had won that game, I would have felt like Penn State would have been really, really in, in good position. So it's a huge swing game. You know, I mean, God bless Iowa and and the way they play and the the absolute maximum that they get out of that team. But, man, I just don't see them, like, in the same category as as any of, of the above, including Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State, even Oregon. Ooh, even Oregon? I'd take Iowa over Oregon. You would? Okay. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. God, yeah. Just because oh you, God, you yeah. think you think the Oregon offense would, would struggle big time? I think they I think they have some issues. I think there'd be I think the fourth quarter would belong to Iowa in this matchup. Um Yeah, and look, like here's the thing. We have this we do talk about these two things and they're related, but also not. Is Iowa the second best team in the country? In other words, would you pick Iowa to beat 128 other teams in the country? Not all 128. Okay, that's fine. Um however they're going to finish in the top four because they are going to run the table and they're going to deserve to get there. So whether they win when they get there, I think is a, is a serious question to ask yourself and to ask other people. I just don't, I don't believe that we can penalize them for doing what they've done. I think they take care of business. They don't play a beautiful brand of football, but um, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I think there is something very pretty um, about Iowa in its, in its complete and total ugliness. 
that uh, you can't look away from. Like, for example, on Saturday, I saw a lot of people say uh, Iowa was going to lose and slamming Spencer Petras. Um, I knew Iowa was going to win that game. There was never a doubt in my mind Iowa was going to win that game. Even when you they were getting outgained like one, 175 to 40? They got outgained by Iowa State by like 250 yards and Fair. still beat them by 10. Fair. Yeah, they don't even care. Iowa fans should wear the fact that they averaged 2.4 yards per play as a badge of honor. Tattoo that on your face and walk around with it. I think that is the most incredible thing. Be proud of the fact that you like to play in the mud and that you guys are a dirty bunch of bastards and that you don't know play a beautiful brand of football. I think that's great. Um, Iowa is just going to find a way to win all these games, and they are never going to be the number two, the second best team in the country, but they're going to have a chance to play to be number one. By the way, a couple weeks ago, I said 43 point something percent chance of running the table. You and I have to both agree at this moment, the chance is in the 60s. It's a 60 percent chance. It's definitely gone way up, but I do think the limitations in the style of play, you know, does sort of put them maybe in a little bit more vulnerable position to lose than than maybe your, your other, you know, types of teams in that same ranking position. Uh, by the way, do they, do they have to play Nebraska on the road at the end of the year, or is that they do final yeah, game see, of the year? Yeah. That is going to be a barn burner. That's yeah, going to be a that, barn because Nebraska is probably one. five and six at that point. Yeah, I that's agree with the you. one. That's the one where is you know Nebraska is certainly playing better. I mean, they're still finding stupid ways to lose games, uh, and you know we can talk about Scott Frost and what that means. But I just think that's the game that you look at to me and say that's going to be a tough one. That's going to be a real tough one for for Iowa at that point in the year i was at i was in lincoln when iowa was 11 and 0 and would that have been 2015 i think it was 20 the year they 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 lost to michigan yeah. i think it was 2015 i was yeah. at that game it was the friday after thanksgiving i drove up uh i was in um i was at in austin on thanksgiving i drove up i stayed the night in wichita and then i went to the game on friday i think it was um, and then Iowa celebrated on their home field like they had won the national championship, which they kind of had. Um, I'd be really excited to see what that scene is going to be like. If the Rass is playing 5-6 and six and Iowa's 11-0, I think that's going to be a pretty pretty good atmosphere. And that is that is a Friday. It's a day after Thanksgiving, 11-26. Are you surprised that Ed Orgeron still has his job today? Yeah, aren't you? I mean, we were prepared for it. Yeah, I mean... A little bit. You know, I think anytime you, you lose a game like they did at Kentucky and you know the seat's hot, you, you sort of wonder if the school will just go ahead and make the move. Obviously, they did not. They're going to let this play out a little bit more. Um, I still think we know what the end result is going to be at the end of the year. They're, they're just not good enough. They, they have not capitalized enough on the momentum from winning the national championship. They've obviously been very unlucky. I mean – They've lost tons of guys to injuries. They've lost both of their cornerbacks now, um, both of them are quite good players. It, it's it's a mess, but but they are they are not good enough. And yeah, Orgeron, I think at some point before the end of the year is going to be out. But they're obviously not in a hurry to just get it done right now. Um, their next month or so could be really really ugly. Like when you look at the games LSU's got coming up, this is potentially going to be like historically bad you know they, they still have to play they still have to play Alabama you know they they're playing Florida this week they still have to play Arkansas they still have to go to Ole Miss they still have to play A&M it's 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 something 
Um, so a lot of intrigue in the SEC and, and and especially in the SEC West. I mean, I've heard even people mention, well, what if Texas A and M runs the table? I mean, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't. I've I don't. Heard that. I don't I've heard that. I've heard people bat that around. What if A&M runs the table? And and if you look at it, I mean, it's not out of the question because they've got Missouri, South Carolina. They've got uh, Auburn at home. They they go to Ole Miss, Prairie View at home, at LSU. Like, I don't think it's going to happen because I still think it's a pretty flawed team. But, you know, if they were to run the table and Alabama loses at Auburn, well, then A&M is playing for the SEC title. That's a good. That's a great point. I mean, and if they're eleven and two, beating Georgia, yeah, that's 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 a trip to the top four. Um, it's, a, it's a great look. We we've given Jimbo some hell on this podcast and and A and M for giving him that contract, but I was impressed with the way they they hung in there and fought. Like they, Alabama seemed to have control of that game. They had wrestled that game away, and then and then A and M went back and went back right at him and and won it. It was impressive. Yeah, I was, and I think all of us were like very confident when Alabama pulled even in the fourth and was pulling ahead that they were going to win that game. I mean, I had almost no doubt in my mind, and I was still going to say to A&M, hey, that's a hell of a performance. I mean, with your backup QB, an offense that had sputtered, put up in the 30s to, to dictate the tempo for like 45 or 50 or 55 minutes, um, just like a really great performance that even if they had lost, I'd be saying to you today, hey, this is probably an eight-win team. Look at their schedule. They're going to turn it around. Not what they wanted, but it's not going to be an LSU type disaster. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't really. You mentioned Alabama's youth before. Yeah. I don't really know how much stock to put in that. I mean, this is a t- this is a program that reloads all the time with young guys, true freshmen at left tackle. We've seen in the past. Uh, we've seen young guys at quarterback multiple times at key positions. I just don't know how much stock to put in that, and not to say that there are external factors at all. Sometimes you just lose games. Um, but this was a game that I and all of us, all of us, speaking for all of us, I did not think Alabama was going to lose at a point in the fourth quarter. I thought for sure they were going to win. And we look back on this as, oh, remember that close call with A&M that nobody cares about now? That's kind of how I thought this game would play out. Yeah, I mean, still, I, I think there were moments in that game where there was a little bit of an experience and, and maybe even with the staff, too. Saban kind of was a little critical of his coaching staff coming out of that game. I don't know if you saw those comments, you know, well, I mean, and it was not like, it was not like all out, you know, these guys suck, but you know, he was asked about the fact that I think it was first and goal at the four and they, they threw it three straight times and and they didn't complete a pass and they ended up kicking a field goal. And he said, yeah, I, I wish we, you know, I wish we would have challenged them a little bit more with the run in that situation, you know? So, that's about as critical as, as you'll hear him of, of an assistant coach publicly. Now, privately is a different matter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we don't know about that. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, there are moments in that game where, where, you know, I think Alabama could have pushed it a little bit. But again, like, young quarterback, you know, running game that has not been working. Surprisingly, like for the first time in a decade, a running game that has not been working. Um, no guy, I think, on the outside who's, this is like a, a terrible comparison, but no Devontae Smith, no Waddle, but again, like no Jerry Judy. Well, but and, how and many Billings times those guys walk through? Yeah, I had, Billingsley's was a great a player. Dropped a pass. Yeah. Dropped dropped a couple passes. You know, yeah, can't, total that doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. So I still feel like we'll look back on this and look at it like maybe we've looked at Ole Miss to Bo Wallace losses back in the day. Um, 
but yeah, you, you wrote after the game that Alabama's issues are, are multiple and, and the math of getting to the playoff is not really number one on that list. I agree with you. There are issues with this team defensively, running the football, being aggressive, capitalizing on opportunities. That is not typical Alabama, but still puts them in a class by themselves, or at least with Georgia. I still think they're separated, but they're not perfect. You know? All right, let's turn to this week's games, starting with Kentucky at Georgia, the big CBS matchup, 3.30 Eastern. Game days going there, back to Athens. I think they were just there a couple weeks ago. So Georgia's like a three-touchdown-plus favorite in this game. It's unbelievable. I mean, Kentucky is not is no slouch. You know, defensively, Kentucky's a monster. And um, and they're getting better. Like, they seem to be getting better every single week. And it's not always pretty. You know, we, we had this conversation about Iowa. They know who they are. Mark Stoops, I think, is is finally generating some some buzz about, you know, what if uh, this job comes open, that job comes open, how how viable is he? He's been at Kentucky for a long time. Frankly, I'm not sure it, it would be advisable to leave Kentucky because you know he he could go down as as you know a legendary coach in Kentucky history. Um, it's going to be interesting. I mean, this is going to be an ugly physical game, and even Kirby Smart said. It is it is most recent media availability that every year, every year, it's it's one of the most physical games Georgia plays. So, I mean, I don't know about the odds. Don't listen to me for sports gambling advice ever. But man, it just doesn't like three three touchdowns, three plus touchdowns seems like way too much. Yeah, twenty two and a half points. ESPN matchup predictor: ninety five point four percent chance that Georgia wins. Seems high. I'm not saying bet on Kentucky. But that seems very high, 95.4% chance. Um, yeah, this will be a physical game, but Georgia's not going to lose a physical game to Kentucky. Well, Kentucky will make them sweat. Kentucky will make them have to take an ice bath afterwards. If you're Kentucky, um, that's a victory in itself. But they're not going to beat Georgia. If they do, by the way, anarchy um, will rain from the sky in the world of college football. Anarchy will rain from the sky. That's now, that's... Ooh, all right. Um, anarchy is not a real thing. Like anarchy, you can't feel or touch. But nonetheless, anarchy will be falling, pouring upon all of us as we attempt to explain what this means for the college football playoff. Because Kentucky, all of a sudden, will well, be in the driver's seat for yes. the SEC East, and they will yes. win the SEC East because they'd have to lose twice the rest of the way to yes. lose it. Yes. I, I I can't envision it, but. Uh, this is the kind of year where something crazy like that just might happen. All right, this is not a great week of of, of games. There's not a ton of like awesome matchups. Um, I did want to mention a couple things. Michigan State at Indiana. Michigan State's got a chance to be seven and zero. You've already sort of mea culpa on <sighs> Michigan. Why State did you seven. say Michigan State was the worst team in the country? Have we talked yeah. about this yet? It's terrible that you did that. Your Twitter mentions must be in a horrible, horrible place. I wanted. I want to mention it for this reason. If LSU opens, how viable is the name Mel Tucker for the LSU job? He is the he is like one A, I think, on their list. He should be. I think, he should be. Yes, should be. Jimbo is not. I don't think Jimbo is on is. That's really something that's going to happen. But I think that Mel Tucker is the guy that when you kind of dig through the rubble and you poke around and see what you got, you realize that he's a really good option. Well, he checks the boxes of recruiter. He checks the box of of being in the SEC before. 
you know, it, it and he and he checks the winning box. Like he improved Colorado very quickly in one year. I mean, they weren't great, but they they were improved. And he's obviously done a hell of a job right now with Michigan State. Understands the transfer portal. That's one of the reasons why Michigan State is where they are. Um, you know, I hate to be the bearer of bad news for Michigan State fans, and maybe he will stay, but he is going to be the hot guy in this in this cycle, I believe. Yeah, and Mel Tucker's not going to spend the rest of his career at Michigan State. That's not a slam against Michigan State. It's just that Michigan State is not the same type of job as LSU. And one day, an LSU job is going to open. He's going to take it. That day might come in the next 60 days. But um, he's also, like you mentioned, his assets. I think he's very good at connecting with people yeah. and getting people yeah. to play hard. And when you get down to it at LSU, if you get 110 people to play hard, you're going to beat a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of teams. So I think he's a very appealing candidate. All right. Um, UCF at Cincinnati was supposed to be a big game. It's not. Oklahoma State at Texas. Eh, I mean, there's not much. I think Oklahoma State is not is is not really a team that we need to pay a lot of nah. attention to. I mean, not unless they win like, this game. If they do, yeah, we're going to get on board. But I just think at this point, like we're not not focused on them. They're obviously a top twenty five team, but that's not delude ourselves or fool ourselves into thinking that they're going to be a team that's going to be 11 and no going into yeah. bed. It's not going to happen. You know, Auburn and Arkansas should be interesting, but we don't really need to talk about it. You know, had BYU won against Boise, they would have been that, you know, that, that would have been maybe the game day game, but the shine came off BYU a little bit when they lost to Boise. They Baylor's been very good. Five and one Dave Aranda. Awesome job. You know, cleaned out his offensive staff after last season and and they found something there. Jerry Bohannon's playing really well. I, I kind of like Baylor in in that game. Uh, Oklahoma's got TCU. It'll it'll be interesting to look at Oklahoma just from the standpoint of the drama that, that's gone on. Ole Miss at Tennessee Lane going back to Knoxville, but you know honestly he's been back to Knoxville as an assistant. Like I I just don't think it has the juice really. It's been long enough. It's he's. It doesn't it's have been do so long that UT fans probably like him again. Like it's come full circle where he's yeah. not this like hated figure. Oh, there were a lot of people who wanted him to be the coach there the last couple times that job came open. I think there's uh, a better chance of him getting the USC job than getting Tennessee job. I don't think there's a great chance of either, but NC State at Boston College, you know, this is a, a good one for the for the nerds. This is a good one for the college football nerds. I think it's a big game in the Atlantic, right? Because NC State with a win at BC, you start looking ahead and, and realizing that this is a team that can play for an ACC championship. Yeah. But a loss opens up everything and obviously opens up a pathway for Clemson to, to I wouldn't even say backdoor their way in, but it opens up a way for Clemson to, to win the Atlantic and, and win the ACC again. But other than that, I mean, there's really not much else. I mean, this is um, as awesome as last week was, and there are some people who who have called it one of the great college football Saturdays in, in history. I don't really know how you actually could measure that because um, there have been a whole lot of Saturdays in college football history. But Hey, I, I will say, Dan, w- one game to, to maybe keep an eye on, especially if you're up late and you're a degenerate, is Arizona State at Utah. I don't, I don't necessarily think that this is, might be a great game. I think Arizona State is actually pretty good. Um, I just think focus on Arizona State as a team that can get there in the end and play in Oregon um, and maybe not 
for Arizona State to get into the playoff, but go toe-to-toe with Oregon as two top 10 teams, kind of like that Utah-Oregon matchup a couple of years ago. Arizona State at like 10-2, and 11-1 is really not out of the question. I think we've talked so much about their off-field garbage that we've forgotten that they're, they're a pretty good football team. They've showed it the last few weeks. Well, I was going to say with the cloud of them being like just blatant cheaters hanging over their heads. I mean, they are. Like, like look, there's all kinds of different kinds of cheating and ways to rationalize it. And the NCAA rules are constantly changing and, and everyone understands what business they're in, but the way Arizona state cheated, which is they had prospects on campus during COVID when the whole idea was, all right, no one's going to recruit in person during COVID because, you know, we're trying to do health and safety, we're tr- all that stuff. So like, for them to just sort of blatantly ignore that when like that that that's pretty brazen and it ticks off a lot of people. I think there are like a lot of coaches certain, mad. Yeah. There, yeah, there's certain kinds of cheating that are just like, come on, man, like like we all understand we gotta do what we gotta do, but you you've taken it too far. You know, you you are just spitting into our faces because we all agreed to do this. And and Arizona State's just like, nah, we're just gonna keep doing our thing. Not not great. Um but good content. Great content. Great for the internet. All right. Well, that'll wrap us up for this week on the College Football Fix with Paul Meyerberg and Dan Walken from USA Today Sports. Hope everybody has an awesome weekend. Not as great as the weekend before. Can't ask for that kind of action every single week. But we will make the best of it. Enjoy it. Stay safe. Please listen, like, and subscribe to the podcast on whatever app you use to listen and we'll talk to you next week the college football fix podcast with paul meyerberg and dan wolken this is the college football fix podcast from usa today sports